Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, I'll be discussing Labour's strategy, policy agenda and electoral hopes with Claire Ainsley, the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's centre-left renewal project, who worked as Keir Starmer's executive director of policy from 2020 to 2022. Before she joined Starmer's team, she was executive director of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and wrote a fascinating book in 2018, which I often draw from, called The New Working Class, How to Win Hearts, Minds and Votes. Thanks so much for joining us, Claire. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And just so our listeners can get a sense of the work that you were doing for Labour, can you fill us in a bit about what your role was in the leader of the opposition's office and also how you think the party changed over the course of time that you were there up until this point? Because I suppose you started that job when it was simply about rebuilding the party following that huge defeat under Jeremy Corbyn in 2019. Sure. So I started in April 2020 Mm. as Keir was elected leader. And of course, it was after that defeat that you referred to in 2019, which was so devastating Mm. for Labour and morale was obviously incredibly low. And it wasn't just the scale of that defeat. It was it being our fourth election Uh, loss. And so therefore, being able to be part of that really from the beginning to the start of this year has been a tremendous privilege, actually, and a huge opportunity. And I, of course, am receptive to all of the feedback that Kia (laughs) gets as leader. But I think he has taken us from the most astonishing uh, position where morale, as I say, was on the floor. We were 20 something like 26 points behind in the polls. And really he has, and the rest of the politicians around him, have picked the Labour Party up from where they were, have given Labour its confidence back, has reconnected it essentially with working class voters and the wider electorate, and now looks as though it needs a serious programme for government because Mm. it is being considered as a party for government. And that is a tremendous success so far. But of course, that's only part of the picture. The rest of it is still to come. And all the questions now, like you say, because they seem to be in a position where they are a government in waiting are about their policies. What would they actually do in power? And you were executive director of policy. I wonder if you could give us a bit of an idea of what that role involves and what you make of how the policy agenda is shaping up so far. 
Sure. So my role, as you say, was executive director of policy, and that was for the Labour Party. You're employed by the Labour Party, and you're, we were situated in the leader of the opposition's office in Parliament. And at the time, it was quite a small team. We were obviously transitioning from a Labour Party as it was. So there were lots and lots of staffing changes, as you can imagine. And really, that early that early period was couple of really important things. One was on the policy front was to make sure that we were directing policy where we wanted it to be. And that for us was about making sure it was absolutely rooted and grounded in the Labour Party that Keir was elected to deliver, which was one that is grounded in the experience and interest of working people. The other part of that was obviously to provide staff leadership in that context And particularly, remember, we were at the start of that pandemic. Mm. We were starting a role and forming a team in the context of a pandemic where you couldn't be together. And us being the types we were, being recruited by Keir Starmer, there were no parties. (laughs) There was no breaking of the rules. We were having to form those relationships over Zoom. We were having to manage some pretty difficult stuff, actually. Difficult for lots and lots of people. And doing that at a point where we weren't together physically much of the time. So that early period was really characterised by both that big organisational transformation that Keir and the, the team were undertaking, but also looking out towards the country to say, what is the right kind of opposition leadership here in the context of a pandemic, which the public were very clear they wanted to see parties pulling together. They were not interested in party politics as usual. They wanted to see the parties putting the national interest first. And I think every step of the way, that is what Starmer did. Mm, Yeah, I remember that sort of that push and pull of constructive sort of criticism and trying to expose some of the mistakes that the government was making even at that early time. And let's talk about that policy agenda then, because there's been some conflicting sort of narratives about what kind of Labour Party Keir Starmer is leading. Various commentators have suggested that it's actually quite a conservative, small c conservative agenda in terms of playing into patriotic framings, but also specific things like being hardline on strikes, accepting the sort of Conservative Party's framing of the economy with very strict fiscal rules, very similar to those of the Chancellor, as well as other sort of more cultural things, perhaps rowing back on some of the trans rights reforms, as well as not having a particularly different agenda on immigration and asylum policy, versus the idea that actually Labour's platform is more radical than you think with the green agenda trying to mimic what Biden's doing in the US, as well as quite big stuff on workers' rights, overhaul of workers' rights. Where do you sit in those two those two assessments? And is that too simplistic as binary? So I think the most important thing is to do at this point is to look at the missions that Keir Starmer has set out. That's the most informative thing that people can do to look at what, is, what does the Labour Party stand for and where is it heading? And I accept that there's much more detail and more retail offers that we would expect to see down the track. Mm. The missions are true to where Starmer wants to take the country, which is that he is someone who thinks very strategically, thinks long term about what it is we need to be mobilised as a country to do. And I see in those missions him talking not just to government policy and politics, but also there's a really clear signal there to to businesses, to devolved governments and to citizens too, to say, this is what we as a country need to be mobilised behind. And these are the policies that then flow from that. So in terms of, is it a radical agenda? Is it small C conservative? 
I think it's much more about really serious reforms. I think it's pretty fundamental reforms to the kinds of business model we have. If you take Rachel Reeves's speech to the think tank in DC recently, yeah. where she talked about security really being the bedrock of what you have to do now in these incredibly challenging times to secure not just household incomes, but to support, secure your supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think it's far more helpful to think in terms of this being a bold reforming agenda. But the way that is done is to go with the grain of the way people experience and think and feel policy. And by that, I think that Labour thinks much more about how is this going to affect the average family or the average person sitting around their kitchen table, adding up their bills over the course of the month, uh, their wages, how is it going to impact on them? And I think all the talk of kind of radical and transformative, that doesn't necessarily speak to those voters. Mm-hmm. So I think it is something which is really serious about reform. I think it's about getting underneath some of the problems that we've had, the root problems that we've had in the economy. But I also think it's done in a way which is absolutely with the grain of where most people in this country could see their, the political leadership taking it. That's really interesting because I suppose I suppose there is a bit of a tightrope to walk between the country wanting change. A lot isn't working in this country, not just the fact that people are struggling to pay their bills. You know, there's a lot of examples of public services that are failing and also our railways, for example. So people do want big change. But I suppose when you're feeling so precarious financially, you don't want anything that's going to make you think, it's something that could make things worse. We saw that what happened with the mini budget under Liz Truss, for example. So is it about walking that tightrope in terms of how you talk to voters? Yeah, I think it's being really strategic about the choices that you make and when you make them. So people clearly want change. Everybody is desperate for change. That is what Sunak is up against, is mm. people want change. They've seen what the Conservatives have done and they do not want more of it. They're not conserving very much. They are actually making the country, people are feeling worse off and they are worse off. So we understand that message. That is different to promising a massive agenda of lots and lots of different types of change. So I would go back to saying, fundamentally, I think the politics are have the ability to transform the country for the better. But I think you have to take it in stages and you have to do policy and enact policy in ways that are going to change people's lives for the better. And you don't do that by layering on lots of language and policy, which might be contradictory and might create lots of upheaval. You do it in ways which are long-term plans. This is where we want to go. And that's what Starmer's doing in setting out these missions. He's saying, this is where we want the country to head. And then he has work to do in his programme for government preparation What do we do in the first 100 days? Mm. What are the things that we do? What are you going to feel different at the end of that first term? Those are the sorts of considerations. So for me, that is not a small C conservative agenda. I think it's quite an exciting agenda, but he is not prepared to disrupt the everyday experience that people have by doing lots of things that actually create a load of byproducts of policy that are not helpful to them. Mm. Let's do things which are actually going to transform things for the long term rather than threaten the stability of the economy. So it's a cautious, it's a cautious reform, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you talk about layering layering on those policies. Labour's often accused of not having enough policies, even by Labour MPs and political commentators, even though they've they've got quite a lot of policies. But I think there is a sense that people don't feel like they've got a picture of 
what those policies would add up to if under a Labour government. And do you accept that criticism? Do you think there is a bit of a gap there? I think some of that's fair because I think if you look at it, you, I certainly see, obviously in my role I would be looking out for policy, but I certainly think that Labour's got lots to say if you look at housing and planning, employment yeah. rights, they're really emerging with a green energy agenda. Some of that stuff that's coming through I think is really potentially quite quite important They've actually also done a huge amount on law and order and on mm. crime and justice, violence against women and girls. So they're really filling in lots of that kind of policy landscape. Yeah, yeah. But I think what a lot of is being reflected back from voters is, what do you stand for? What's going to be different? And then MPs saying, well, what's the retail offer? Now, yeah. if we were two weeks to a general election, I might be a bit more worried than I am now. But my expectation is that the team have set out these big overarching missions, I think the speeches that sit behind the missions are really important because they're where we're spelling out the argument and the case for those missions. I would then fully expect there to be more detail, including retail style offers. I'm not surprised that I haven't seen that yet. Right. OK. Yes, because you talked about retail offers coming down the track later on. Just so our listeners know, actually, what is a retail offer? I think you've used the phrase kitchen table economics, which comes, I think, from Australia. But basically, it's the idea of policies that touch people's lives day to day. Yeah, right? totally. And and, I, and that's not what the missions, that's not my understanding of what the missions are there to do. The missions right. are not there to be replicated on a pledge card. They're to say to us, this is where we want the country to go. And to, as I say, galvanise and mobilise businesses, civil service, civil society and citizens and devolved governments into saying this is where we want to go because often what's being said back to the Labour Party is the public policy environment for many of those different groups has been so volatile. Mm. They need that sense of certainty of where they're going. But that isn't the same as saying we are going to increase the minimum wage by X. Yeah, We are going to give you universal free childcare up to this point. Those are the sorts of things that you would hope and expect that Labour candidates would be able to be talking to voters about directly. And as I say, I'm just not surprised that they haven't launched a pledge card, what could be anything like 18 months before a general election. After the break, we'll look at what international centre-left examples Labour can learn from. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, 
So the centre-left seems to be bouncing back around the world after a sort of grim decade post the financial crash. I'm thinking of Australia, Germany and the US, but there's other examples too. You've got, you've just got back from Australia fairly recently. What do you think UK Labour can learn from the sort of centre-left revival around the world and examples that you've been looking at? Yeah, so we are certainly seeing that centre-left parties from a low point after the financial mm-hmm. crisis, where some look like they wouldn't survive at all, there are some countries where centre-left parties are being re-elected, but I caution that because the right-wing populists and the right-leaning parties are certainly strong in many, many countries. And even if not strong, the politics and the root causes of why they came to prominence in the first place have not gone anywhere. If anything, they probably speeded up in the last in the last few years. So certainly we've got obviously Biden in in the US and in Australia, the New South Wales government has just been elected. And so both at federal level and at state level, apart from Tasmania, everywhere in Australia has elected the Labour Party. So we were really interested in finding out, well, what is it we can learn from the elections of centre-left governments? And there is still a really big challenge that actually finding a sustainable majority when you've got this fragmentation everywhere. So it's not just in this country. If anything, our two-party system holds some of that, holds that together more than it might do in systems where there are other options. Finding sustainable coalitions is really difficult because we are just society is much more fragmented and more complicated than it was. So what's the centre-left agenda that can really bring people together and provide that kind of broad-based coalition? So we're certainly finding that the some of the policies and the programme that the Biden administration have been leading on are, are being replicated elsewhere. So this sense that particularly post-pandemic, the idea that the state can just get out the way and the market will come to our aid, just it's never been the case, but it's certainly not the case in an era where you've got pandemics, a war in Ukraine and further geopolitical instability, but also technological developments, further disruption and so on and so forth. So there is a sense that actually having centre-left parties that offer more of that pride in what the state can do is part of the offer. Biden has obviously made this bold infrastructure push in the United States. The Australians too have done not quite as big a push on it, but they've also done an investment in the people and places that are building and making things again. So I definitely think there's a sense of it's not the same state, it's not the same the state is back, but it is definitely a sense that centre-left parties who have got a more adaptive way of looking at how you can actually get the state to work. So that is part of what I think we can learn. There's also some things we can learn in terms of strategy and campaign tactics. The Australians were really clear on this phrase I really liked about kitchen table economics. That's what they had to do in 2022. So in 2019, they lost the election from a really strong lead. So they had a really big lead in 2019. A lot of expectation, a lot of media saying, what are your policies? What exactly is your plan here? Lots of detail. They promised a variety of tax changes. But by 2022, they felt that some of that had overwhelmed their platform, Mm. that they hadn't been able to clearly communicate to you what is the difference that a Labour government's going to make to your your life, to your family's life, to your community's life. 
and therefore took really that lesson that they needed to be much more streamlined, much clearer. And obviously they went on to victory in 2022. So we're looking at some of what the Labour Party here can learn from that. That's so interesting because I remember in 2019 there was so much more going on in that election, but something that Labour activists said that harmed them on the doorstep was so many policies coming through centrally. Every day they were getting new leaflets or new sort of lines to take that they were having to tell voters. And actually that was making some voters confused, even if they like some of the individual policies that were that were out there. And you've been grappling with this idea of how you keep that traditional coalition of working class voters and more liberal left middle class voters together for these kind of parties. One of the issues is perhaps the sort of more culturally right message that conservative parties have. And the culture wars are clearly something that this government is going to try and use coming into the next election. How should Labour confront these kind of campaigning messages? Because they can be quite appealing because often they sound like the sort of common sense position. And they're not going anywhere either. You can definitely see Sunak using those sorts of Mm. tactics, even though it doesn't quite always sit right with him. It's certainly something that he's using. Um, sort of a bit in Australia, but in the States, they're very caught up in yeah. what we'd call sort of the cultures and so on. So it absolutely is a tactic that's not going anywhere. In terms of how you combat it, you ha- I think the centre-left has to have its own story on culture to not put our heads in the sand and think that we can somehow talk to people about economics and therefore everything else will go away. Yeah. I think it's really important that we have our own confidence story about culture. And I think that we've done it before. It's our version of what this country means and actually whether people voted for Brexit or not we are having to redefine some of what that means so therefore there is an opportunity to be able to talk about what it means to belong in this country that is an inclusive positive forward-looking vision that actually can bring people together and some of that I've seen Keir Starmer do already I think he had to do some very clear lines in the sand around defence and security quite early on. This is not something that comes as anything other than second nature to him. He was very clear early on that's where he stood. So being in tune with where the public is, I think, is really important. That's not the same as taking everything from just what public opinion might tell you to do. Those things are subtly different. Absolutely can lead people to a place where public opinion move steadily in a progressive direction. So you look at all of the kind of social inequality gains that we've had over the past 20, 30 years, those have been as a result of effective arguments being made and won. But you do it by making people feel part of it, not by alienating them. And that's part of what parts of our movement need to find that tradition of persuasive political communications, not the one that alienates people. And just lastly, we always have these kind of voter groups that come up in in elections. So Stevenage Woman, I think, is the latest one that Labour should be targeting. But in general, there is often this image of the working class, but aspirational perhaps apolitical voter and these are the people that both of the parties are fighting over. Do you think that demographic is that important and how much do you think sort of Labour is appealing to to that sort of version of voter if you like at the moment? Yeah so like most people you slightly cringe at some of of the descriptions (laughs) and then when politicians use them in speeches or they themselves describe them you think or just it's like literally the thing that sort of turns voters off completely but I think the sort of really important point is there basically is not a path to a parliamentary majority without winning today's working class voter. And that is fundamentally a different picture to the one that there was in the past. Like it is more likely to be female. It is more likely to be a she and Stevenage. It's not just this sort of 
red wall voter that's a traditional working class voter, a sort of man, man in the north of England. It's, it's a much more modern version. It's much less homogenous than it was, much more likely to be. It's multi-ethnic. It's much mm-hmm. more diverse, more likely to be working in services, service industry. So I'm, I don't love the characterizations. I get why they're needed and you need a language for them. I think what's more important is that the Labour Party remembers constantly that there is no way they're going to get a parliamentary majority unless they win working people over and under Keir Starmer's leadership. That is actually where they're heading. That is to say you have to unite that coalition that includes those more liberal-leaning middle-class voters. I think you can find an agenda that builds common ground rather than appeals to one over the other. But if you constantly prioritise the agenda of the liberal middle-class labour-leaning voter... It might make you feel good, ain't going to get you into power. And there is a way we can do it and there's a way we can do it. And it's what Keir's leading now, where you find your roots back with working class voters, but you draw in that Labour leaning more middle class and there is a route there for Labour to win. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Claire. That was really fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my guest, Claire Ainsley. We'll be back on Thursday. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com upgrade.